Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, now we've come to the final sermon in my series on Christianity in the 21st century. At long last, some of you perhaps are glad that we're finally at the end of the series so we can shift gears as we look to Thanksgiving and Christmas. But I do hope that you found this series worthwhile. Church is one of the few places in our society where we have the chance to ask big questions. The questions about life and meaning and purpose. These questions are tied up in theology, and that is what makes theology so fascinating to me. These subjects matter. They matter to our lives. So far, we've looked at what it means to be human. We've examined a belief in God. We've wrestled with sexual ethics and the person of Jesus. We've asked, what does the Christian life look like? And today, as we conclude, we look appropriately at the hereafter. What happens after we die? What does our faith say about this important question? Perhaps more so than any other question, this issue about the afterlife is clouded by endless conflicting images that we see in popular culture. I could turn on Netflix or scan a library of movies and find one after another shows and movies that paint a portrait of the afterlife. I'm sure you've seen many of these shows or movies. The list of them is far too long to mention. When you Google heaven, you find image after image of cumulus clouds and golden gates and lots of light. When you attend various funerals and hear about someone's life, you inevitably hear that the deceased is, say, now playing golf in heaven because that was his passion in this life. Is there no rough in those heavenly golf courses? Sometimes I wonder. Movies talk about angels and guardian angels and bells ringing so angels can get their wings. One of the best-selling book series of all time, the Left Behind series, focuses on the rapture. A few years ago, when my house was getting painted after Hurricane Harvey, the painter, who was a committed evangelical Christian, left me a half dozen Christian movies, including several on the afterlife. I have to confess, I have not yet watched them. Some of these cultural products are humorous, others frightening. But do they tell us much about the afterlife? It's curious that in the past 50 years, we have heard less and less talk of hell. In the 19th century, hell was an ever-present threat that was preached about regularly from most Christian pulpits. Today, hell seems distinctly out of fashion. It's, it's also curious how even those who do talk about hell seem to never place themselves there. So what do we make of all this talk about the afterlife? More importantly, as Christians, as adherents to a faith system that has historically put a lot of emphasis on the afterlife, what makes sense for us today, given our worldview and modern science? The first place that Christians should logically turn is the Bible. We are a people of the book, and that book does have various passages that speak about the afterlife. So what does it say? This is where things get a little bit tricky. Would you be surprised if I said, if I said anything different? There's a significant amount of biblical evidence to suggest that early Judaism had no conception of heaven or hell as we commonly think about it. Their earliest texts in the Hebrew Bible claim that when you die, you go to Sheol. Sheol is neither heaven nor hell. It is a dark place where your soul goes. 
The Psalms claim that from Sheol, you cannot praise God. Sheol was not a good place to be. It signified the end, the conclusion of it all. Every dead person ended up in the same place. This is why the ideal for ancient Judaism was a long and prosperous life. If God favored you, if you kept the commandments, a long life hopefully would be your future because there wasn't anything to look forward to afterwards. Judaism today, for the most part, holds a pretty similar view. But we also see in the Hebrew Bible talk about the coming day of the Lord. This hope, this, this hope for the day of the Lord developed over time. It was not about heaven or hell, but instead about God appearing on earth to set things right, finally, and to bring about God's righteousness. The so-called Isaiah Apocalypse in Isaiah 25, regarded by scholars as the last portion of Isaiah to be written, talks about God creating a feast of rich foods and fine wines, and importantly, swallowing up death forever. Remember, this is a time when life expectancy was around 30 years old. Some, of course, lived well into old age, but most people died in an untimely fashion, seemingly without justice. God's righteousness, therefore, would include an end to these all-too-common short lives. This was the hope, but it wasn't heaven. It was a short step from that to the far more expansive apocalyptic texts that we see in Zechariah and especially in the book of Daniel. The idea of the coming day of the Lord took on a larger and larger place in the imagination of ancient Israel. It involved the Son of Man coming in the clouds and all the people of Israel gathered near Mount Zion. Then we have the key event of the Maccabean Revolt in the 160s BC. That revolt began when the Greek overlord of Israel named Antiochus Epiphanes ordered the desecration of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. This sparked an uprising, an uprising in which all the pent-up frustration of ancient Israel came bursting forth. Miracle of miracles, the ancient Israelites won the revolt and established an independent Jewish kingdom in Palestine, something that lasted until the Romans conquered Palestine a hundred years later. But during that revolt, you had people dying on behalf of the God of Israel. Antiochus and his minions did horrible things in order to try and maintain control over Palestine. And that led to an obvious question. If you died on behalf of God, if you had to watch your children die in front of you on behalf of God, and if God was indeed a God of justice, then there had to be some hereafter in which justice was done. The bad were clearly not punished in this life. The good who followed the commandments were not rewarded with long life and prosperity. If God was God, then there had to be some final judgment, some final reckoning. In what today we call extra-canonical texts, those texts that didn't make it into the Hebrew Bible, we see the first clear evidence of a heaven and a hell, or at least something that happens after we die. This notion of a hereafter was combined with the belief in the coming day of the Lord and gave us the belief in a final general resurrection. At some point in the future, God would return and judge the world. The dead would be raised and a new king kingdom would be established on earth, God's kingdom. This was the situation that existed during the time of Jesus. You had the Sadducees, who represented the old school elites, who did not believe in a general resurrection and instead advocated the traditional Jewish belief that the dead, all of them, went to Sheol. Then you had the Pharisees, among others, who did believe in a general resurrection. It's just this debate that we see raised 
in our passage this morning in Luke 20. The Sadducees try to catch Jesus in a logical inconsistency around the notion of the general resurrection. Later, in Acts chapter 23, we see Paul raising this question to get the Pharisees and Sadducees arguing with one another. And yet, even this picture, this picture of the general resurrection and not, does not give us the whole story of what we see in the Bible. In Luke 16, we see a story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is poor and waits at the front gate of the rich man for some alms. After they both die, Lazarus goes to heaven and the rich man goes to Hades. This happens right away, not at the general resurrection. When Jesus is hanging on the cross in Luke, he tells the good thief that that day he would be with him in paradise. The assumption is that someone goes to paradise immediately following death, not at the general resurrection. I could point to other texts as well that indicate that the beliefs of the afterlife were varied and ambiguous. One obvious one is 1 Thessalonians, in which Paul talks about the righteous being lifted up into heaven. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about different levels of heaven that he visited. Then, of course, we have the book of Revelation. Revelation, like Daniel, and a host of extra-canonical sources, is an apocalyptic text. It has the saints praising God and the Lamb in heaven. It talks about the coming war between good and evil, and the so-called millennium, or the thousand-year reign of Christ. It ends with the notion of the New Jerusalem descending from heaven. If we want to be honest about, about what the Bible has to say about the afterlife, we have to admit that it says a lot, and that's not all consistent. It depends on Jewish beliefs and their evolution over time. It's also clearly influenced by views on the afterlife that come from non-Jewish sources. So what do we do? One approach has been to try to harmonize the various viewpoints in the Bible or to manufacture some overall schema on the afterlife by selectively choosing which text you want to read as biblical. This approach has led to the now classic notion of premillennial dispensationalism that dominates much of conservative Christianity in America today. Now, another approach is to see the range of biblical views on the afterlife as entirely predictable and yet also helpful. They show a range of concerns that do come up when we consider the afterlife. The reality is that we don't know what happens when we die we can't possibly know for sure. But that doesn't mean we can't say anything about it either. Now, it's worthwhile at this point to step back from the Bible for a moment. What can we say about the afterlife, Bible aside? What sort of things give us an idea of what the afterlife might be like, if it exists at all? One key issue is whether we take a strictly materialist viewpoint on the world or not. What I mean by that is, can the universe and the human experience be explained solely by looking at atoms and chemical reactions? There is, of course, a lot to be said for this viewpoint, and it has major implications for our thinking about the afterlife. We know, for instance, that our brains are made up of neurons and chemical reactions. When our brains sustain injury, those injuries can affect our memories and also our personalities. It stands to reason, therefore, that our memories and personalities, that which make us us, depend upon the material stuff that is in our brains. When we die, those same brains decompose and eventually go away. 
Logically, therefore, there cannot be an afterlife of the type that we usually think of if we hold a materialist viewpoint. For a materialist, when you die, your brains go away. You go away. Your personality, which is tied up in your brain, cannot persist after your brain is no more. Now, there are those who are Christian materialists. They affirm that the sum total of us, of who we are, depends entirely upon the matter in our bodies. These Christian materialists also agree that when we die, this material goes away along with any sense of us. But, they contend, the Christian belief is about the resurrection of the body. At some point, our bodies will be raised up and reconstituted. It is then, at that point, during the general resurrection, when we will enter heaven or hell, as the case may be. These Christian materialists do not get into the old, age-old debates about which atoms will be in your body. For a long time, Christians argued about the necessity of the same atoms coming back to form you in the afterlife. We now know that, over the course of our lives, our atoms change constantly. We are not the same person at our death as at our birth, at least in terms of being made up of the same molecules. For Christian materialists, the afterlife, the bodily, the bodily resurrection, is a miracle wrought by God. There is no need to explain it. You can't explain it. It is a matter of faith. It simply happens. Of course, not everyone is a materialist, Christian or otherwise. There are those who argue that human consciousness, for instance, is more than simply the result of chemical interactions in the brain. Both philosophically and scientifically, there is reason to believe that matter is not all there is in the universe. Humans are not able to perceive, even now, all that exists. We are limited by our senses and our rational brains. If there's one constant in human history, it's that we have continually been surprised to learn that there is more to the world than meets the eye. If you had explained Newtonian physics to the brightest minds in ancient Rome or Greece, they probably would have laughed at you. If you explain the theory of relativity to someone schooled in, in, the, in the Newtonian worldview, they likewise would not have believed you. If you had told someone a thousand years ago that the Earth is not the center of the universe, and that the universe is as large as we now think it is, they would have locked you up in prison. What we now know does not determine all that is in the universe. The materialist viewpoint, as it is now argued, may not be correct. Now, non-materialists argue for the existence of a human soul, which leaves the body at death and persists beyond the grave. And while there are various arguments made on behalf of this, one thing that needs to be noted is the ubiquity of experiences where people claim to have visits, communication, or awareness of people who have died. Across time and in every culture, people have had these mystical, spiritual, or if you will, paranormal experiences of the dead. It is remarkable how common these experiences are. Have you ever had an experience where you sense the presence of someone you loved but who had died. I would be the first to say that these experiences certainly don't prove anything about an afterlife or the persistence of the soul after death, but they are worth noting. They are valid data points when trying to assess the non-material characteristics of the world. These experiences do have an impact on people's lives. They should not be dismissed altogether merely because a strictly materialist viewpoint has a difficult time assessing all of them. 
perhaps indeed there is something to them. So where does that leave us? What can or should we say about the afterlife from the perspective of a Christian today? This is where I think it's instructive to return to the Bible and to the two passages that we read for today. The first of which comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. When the Sadducees confronted Jesus about what happens after you die and tried to trip him up with a hypothetical situation, he did have a response. The Sadducees asked, if a person has multiple spouses in this life, whose spouse is that person in the afterlife? It is a perfectly reasonable question to ask and one that any one of us might ask today. Jesus responds by saying that when we die, we become like angels and children of God. According to Jesus, our existence in the afterlife is different from our existence in this life. We are transformed. We become like angels, that is to say, messengers of God. We enter the spiritual realm and are somehow linked to God. Jesus affirms that there, that, that there is an afterlife of some sort. Part of us does persist. As angels, the dead can communicate, as angels do, with the living in some way or fashion. We are with God in a way, in a form that is different from how we are with God now. God is, as Jesus says, the God of the living. God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those patriarchs are alive for God, as we will be too. I'll let you make of that response what you will, but it's worth contemplating. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a lengthy exposition on the resurrected body. For this description, the key is Jesus himself. Jesus is the first fruits of what will happen to us. Our resurrected bodies are not made up of flesh and blood as they are now. Instead, according to Paul, they become spiritual bodies, bodies made up of pneuma or spirit, which is the same substance that the ancients, believes, the ancients believed made up the heavenly bodies. Our existence hereafter is more than merely a dismembered soul, but something that we could recognize as being us. In the same way, when the first disciples encountered the risen Christ, they experienced him as something real, something they could recognize as Jesus, even though they affirmed it was not like the earthly Jesus. In the end, obviously, any statement about the afterlife is conjecture. As I said before, we cannot know what happens when we die for the simple reason that we are not dead. But there is a reason to believe that something, some part of us, does persist. That is what we see from the mouth of Jesus and from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Nevertheless, it is an article of faith. Some type of existence after this life is something you have to believe. And so I put that same question to you. What do you believe? You could quite rationally believe that when we die, that's it. There is no more. You are kaput. Your death marks an end. If you believe that, I certainly will support you in your belief and honor it as your pastor. At the same time, you could affirm something like the historic Christian belief in the resurrection. You could believe that some part of you does persist. You could say that the revelation of the risen Christ to the disciples and, and to countless other Christians since then has validity. You can believe that the bonds of love that bind us here on earth do carry on after we die. That is something that people have affirmed for thousands of years in every culture because they've experienced some aspect of their loved ones after death. If there is an afterlife, will it be like this life? 
Probably not. That has never been the Christian view. But it could be something. It is a mystery in the purest sense of the word. For me, it is a mystery that I choose to believe in. For me, that is good news. The God I believe in goes beyond the material world. The love I experience has a depth that speaks to things that are eternal. Maybe death has been swallowed up in victory. Maybe death's sting is not so bad as we might fear. That is something I'm happy to proclaim.